<laughs> Go Additive Podcast, Episode 7. Why? Welcome, everybody, to the Go Additive Podcast. I'm Tate Brown. I'm Tyler Reed. And today, what I want to do, first off, just right out of the gate, we actually have enough listeners at this point to see some statistics on Podbean. I found it really interesting to see where our listeners are from. So I wanted to give a shout out to the most populated or popular areas that listen to us. It's actually the most popular area is the least populated continent outside of. <laughs> is that a fact? <laughs> I think it is. Okay. So if there's any geography whizzes out there, that is Australia. So we've got a lot of listeners coming out of Australia. So shout out to you guys. You guys are number one outside of the U.S. Um, and Canada. The great, the great thing about that is it's winter time here in the U.S., right? Right. We don't have a lot of things to do other than listen to podcasts. But in Australia, it's summer and they're still choosing to listen to <laughs> us. So I think that says a lot. <laughs> I guess. Or there's just more lost souls over there. So we'll we'll have to see. <laughs> Canada, you're coming in a close second. And uh, the UK. Really? Yeah. We've got oh. some listeners over in the UK. So shout out to you guys. Uh, here stateside, our biggest state of listeners. What do you think it is? You have that info? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, I don't know. California. All right. Outside of, of, uh, of Utah. Of course. I think yeah. maybe the statistics could be skewed for sure toward Utah one because we have coworkers that listen. Right. Two, uh, I'm sure geography has something to do with how the, the podcast is maybe marketed. Maybe, but it's hard to say because if people are finding us in Australia and Canada, like we have not told anybody outside of a few coworkers that mm -hmm. we're doing this. So everyone who is listening right now is just organically found our podcast. Yeah. Um, what's interesting too is the platform they're choosing. iHeartRadio is the most popular platform at this point, mm -hmm. uh, which is interesting because I had never listened to a podcast using iHeartRadio. So uh, maybe it'd be good to find out how you guys are listening. Yep. Let us know, guys and gals. Yeah. Where are you listening from and uh, and what How did platform? you find it? Yeah, how did you find us? The only thing I could imagine is that somebody searched 3D printing, which I've done and I've listened to some of the 3D printing podcasts out there and I'm not subscribed to any of them. So that might tell what are you- What you trying to say? <laughs> you should be able to interpret- what I think of the other podcasts that I've listened to, which is all of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we we uh, grow in the hearts of our listeners. Hopefully you come back at least more than once. We're trying to get a little more structured. Today we're operating with some new hardware. Uh, I have a new mic. I'm actually in studio with Tyler this time. And we're going to give this a go and see if we can figure it out. Yeah. So what's the main topic for today? So the main topic today is what is professional 3D printing? Where does the meaning of professional come into play here as opposed to amateur or hobbyist, I think would be the most common term in this realm. A lot of people want to know, where does that extra zero come from? Like what, what's the reason for that extra zero in the price point of a professional or industrial 3D printer? Yeah. Well, before we get into price, let's talk about what your definition of being a professional is even outside of 3d printing like what makes a pro a pro well obviously i think the most direct answer is that you're making money off your printing services or your printer or your printed parts that's the go-to answer right are you are you making money and is it substantial enough that that shows up in your taxes then you're a professional has nothing to do with skill level has nothing to do with machine level. There are correlations, I yeah. would say, and there are uh, things that prime you to make money. There are things that allow you to pursue customers and retain customers and things like that, and we'll get into those. But at the crux of it, are you making money with the 3D printing in the 3D printing realm? Then you're a professional. Is that too simplistic? I don't think so. 
this doesn't make for very interesting talking because I actually agree with you 100%, but I know because I've ha- I've heard other people have yeah. this discussion, and I know there's a big chunk of people out there that say it has to do with quality. Yeah. It has to do how good are you. You will only hear that from people who believe they offer higher quality. It's a very snobbish point of view, and it's a gatekeeping point of view. In my mind, they are trying to differentiate themselves from others. And they're doing that by setting up boundaries. But I don't think that's fair. Interesting. I, I, I'm i with you on the money aspect. I, I really think that's the determining factor. Uh, you can be extremely, extremely good at it. You know, say I'm an iron worker or whatever. I could be the worst iron worker ever. I may not know how to make Damascus steel or whatever. Yeah. But if I am making money... Day in and day out. Let's, you know, not I made money one time. Like, say I do this yeah, for a year. It's a source of income, an ongoing or recurring source of income. You have customers that are repeat customers. I think there are spectrums to this professional level. Like, you sure. might have somebody who is content making $10,000 a year. That's enough to, you know, you got to report that on your taxes, for example, and you're going to have to have some recurring business there. You're a professional. It may not be your full-time profession. And then on the other hand, there are companies that are making tens of millions of dollars. And of course, that's on the professional level as well. You might get better quality out of somebody who is spending a lot of time and effort and passion into a singular print versus a company who is pumping out thousands of models a year or a week, I should say, on some of these printers, more than likely you're not because there is a hardware difference that is going to make accessing that quality much easier. But there's no hard rule to say professional is higher quality, professional is more expensive, et cetera. It just happens to be that that's how it shakes out. So there are degrees of professionalism. And I... I I agree with that full-heartedly. I have people, if you happen to stumble up across my social media at any point, you're going to see a lot of fishing pictures. I fish a ton. And people that, you know, I've been friends with since high school but never talked to anymore, they hit you up and they're like, hey, man, you're a professional fisherman now. Yeah. No, no, that's just all I post about. The only time I take a picture of myself is if I'm holding a fish, but... I'm not a pro because I don't make money. Yeah. Now, that being said, you do have knowledge that is far and away superior to someone like me who is a very casual fisherman. And that comes with being in that professional world. You, you're immersed in it, and there's a performance aspect. In this case, it's sport, but performance in the business world is quality and turnaround time and reliability and things like that. And months into years of doing that, you build up a body of knowledge that is superior to someone who probably even the best amateur, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. So essentially what we're saying before we lose you with all too much uh, fishing talk uh, is you can make money. um, And if you do, you're probably a pro. Yeah, that's what we're saying. You know, we're not the authorities on it. That's our opinion. Um, But we think being a professional means you're making money. Yeah. And there are varying degrees. And the perfect example of this is a guy that's in college still, you know, doesn't even have a degree, but he's got three or four hobby level printers or Mm -hmm. maybe even just one. And and he has a bunch of people hit him up um, on these various dispatch platforms. We kind of talked about one off off air not too long ago, Uh, but they might decide, hey, I want to scale up. Yeah. Buy another printer their throughput is high enough that they're able to sit there and print and they start making money at this. Yeah, they're in college, but they're making money with a small print farm. So I think the underlying conversation here is how do you reach the level where you are offering enough value to potential customers that they're willing to hire you, right? Because it's one thing to say you're a professional if you're making money. How do you get to that point? What differentiates someone who has value to offer and has a potential market there and somebody who doesn't, right? Yeah. 
one thing, well, unless you wanted to follow your own point up, but uh, one thing I'm thinking is... You're not going to read my mind? <laughs> well, you're you're talking adding value, and if a lot of people have access to these now, mm-hmm. you know, you That's can right. buy a, a pretty decent desktop printer for three, three to 700 bucks. Right. And I've used them. I found some that I really like. And the value... You're, you're talking differentiators. Well, you're not really different than anyone else that has a Prusa. Right. Or Very rare is the circumstance where the difference between a professional and an amateur is simply writing a check for a piece of equipment. That's that's not it. Okay. Right? It's, it's the skills that you bring as an operator, as a technician, as someone who can prepare prints, who can execute the prints, who can post-process the prints, who can advise you on what's printable, what's not printable, who can advise you on the type of technology that you should be using, who could possibly validate your prints through simulation and do all of this in a way that's accurate and timely. Yeah. So big value adder time. How fast can you get me my print? Right. This happens to us at trade shows. We always get these these random people that come up to us and say, hey, you guys offer engineering services? Do you offer 3D modeling? So I think those are big value adders, right? Like, can you yeah. can you offer those I, things? I would say they are huge value adds. They're not specific to 3D printing, but they act as a lead generator to your 3D printing service, right? The, the worst thing you could do is have somebody coming to you wanting to pay you money and you have to turn them away because you don't have the skill, the particular skill that they need from you. And oftentimes if someone is coming towards you, especially as you're just getting into the business side of this and you're trying to find clients, you are not going to be approaching JPL or Honeywell or Halliburton and printing parts for Fortune 500 companies. You're not going to be doing that you are going to be probably advertising by word of mouth, maybe starting with friends and family who have ideas or neighbors or something like that. Low-level, low-pressure situations usually coming from people who can't provide you a CAD model. So I would say that's the worst, by the way. (laughs) Oh, for sure. For sure. It is the worst. And uh, I don't enjoy... You know, being a draftsman for somebody else's ideas, some people really enjoy it. I do think if you're just getting started, uh, being capable of drawing up your own CAD models or customers' CAD models is going to be integral to your success in this endeavor. Because if those are the type of people that you can market to and you don't have the tool set to fulfill what they need, then you're going to be swimming upstream. Yeah, and so when we're talking value adders, obviously 3D modeling is great if you don't get hung up. Um, but you talked about time uh-huh. being a major value adder, and yeah. I can see that. Quick turnaround. Yeah. Why? Well, I guess everybody wants it quick, whether it is your yep. your uncle Bob or Joe Schmuckatelli, Mr. Inventor. They want you to create their next idea. Sure. They want it now. They, yeah, they are integrating you into their process because they have to, right? Otherwise, they would just be printing the parts themselves or having the prototypes made themselves. So you are a necessary evil in the process. And the worst thing that you could be doing is... But you're also their best friend. Exactly. (laughs) If you have the capability. Yeah, there's a fine line there. Your best friend, if they're happy with the outcome, and the outcome could be quality, it could be turnaround time, it could be cost, it could be all sorts of things, and you can very quickly become their enemy if you fail on any one of those. But what I'm saying here is because you are sort of a side participant in their longer-term goal, you cannot be a source of drain. Otherwise, they'll find someone different. Like That's why you have to meet and exceed people's expectations for time in this example. Okay, so if if that's my goal, you know, I'm a hobbyist printer, what types of things can I do that make me seem more professional or 
not not just seem right, mm-hmm. not be perceived as a professional, but what types of things give me that value right out of the gate? Well, you could look to see what professional organizations are doing, for example. So professional organizations make it easy for people to submit their models. They make it easy to get a quote for a model. They set expectations for delivery. You might have something like a statement of work so that both parties are agreeing on what the deliverable is and what form it should take. A website helps. Like, you know, yeah. Some a website that just has like your services, maybe your machine capabilities, your expectations of yourself, you know, describe to people who might be interested in that. And then contact information and maybe testimonials or a portfolio or someone, a way for someone to see what type of work you're capable of. And in that portfolio, you should be putting forward your best work. Okay. So what if my equipment becomes the the limiting, the limiting, the (laughs) limiting factor? It probably will. I mean, eventually it will. Uh, There, going back to what I said before, there is a reason why professional grade or industrial grade printers come with added cost. Some of it's hardware, some of it's services that are available and support that's available. A lot of it is IP that's integrated. And just the reality of it is industrial or professional printers are more reliable. They print faster. They print higher quality. And reliability is a huge differentiator. Reliability is the difference between starting a print and having 100% confidence that after 12, 20 hours, 30 hours, 50 hours, that you're going to have a part that's ready to deliver or not. And having 50% confidence or 70% confidence. And that is not scalable, right? If you are pursuing repeat clients, you have to meet the expectations. And if you're losing out on repeat business or if you're failing to meet expectations on delivery time or quality, that's going to make it hard to scale and, and grow a business. And the worst thing that you know, the worst situation that you could be in is that you're doing everything as an owner operator of the business. You're doing everything you can. You're having the right conversations, you're setting the right expectations, but your equipment is not holding up its end of the deal, right? Yeah. How do people end up in a situation? Well, I guess I'll answer my own question. I I think people end up in that situation just through organic growth, right? Like say you're this kid who started in college, has this little print farm going and you organically grew, you outpaced what your printers can throughput. So at some point, the differentiator becomes your equipment. Absolutely. And I think that's kind of the major thing. Uh, All these things make you a pro. You know, just buying an industrial grade or professional grade printer doesn't make you a pro. Right. Because you had mentioned a whole foundation of things that make you good at being a business owner or a 3D printer, but you've got to have all that before you make the jump. Right. I think. Yeah. I think, you know, I, one of my main hobbies is photography. And when I started out in photography, I purchased equipment that was sort of mid range for a consumer. And at the time it felt really expensive in comparison It was a lot more money than I'd ever spent on a camera. Yeah. Right. And it was good. And it allowed me to learn the basics of photography and it allowed me to create some beautiful photographs. But the amount of effort that went into creating that, if I were to do it at scale, is not sustainable and it's not repeatable enough. So with my equipment, I could not, in good conscience, allow somebody to hire me as a wedding photographer, for example because my equipment was not reliable enough and not capable enough. So if I were to be hired on as a wedding photographer, I probably had the skills, compositional skills, the lighting skills, whatever. But if they took me- You're not the guy that crashes the drone. Yeah, no, no, no. (laughs) Into the church. And I'm not the guy who overestimates what I'm in control of, right? And accepts money and then just 
dies under the pressure because I can't deliver on what I promised. Yeah. You know, you might show up to a venue and it's dark. Cheap cameras cannot take good pictures in the dark. They're noisy. You have to open up the shutter. Now you're going to get blur. It's just, they cannot do it. They can't do it. And so by, at that point, upgrading the hardware, I had already taken the time to build the skills. I upgrade the hardware. I get cameras that have two card slots. So it you have an onboard backup, right? Something like that could be huge for a wedding that's only going to happen one time. If you have a card issue and you come to your bride and groom and say, oh hey, goodness. I don't have any photos of this day. I know you paid me two, $3,000 to do this. I'm sorry. They are going to wish that they had never hired you and they were ever going to recommend you. So you would want a professional grade camera that has two card slots. For That's a perfect example. And we can find examples in the machining world. We can find examples in kitchen and like just basically every industry. You have consumer grade equipment. You have professional grade equipment. And there are distinct differences between the two. And they're all geared towards returning value to the user. And the user is buying this equipment knowing that they have an application, they have a solid understanding of the ROI, and they're buying on the value knowing that for every dollar they spend on equipment, they're going to get $5 in customers, for example. Let's, you bring up a few good points, and I don't want to spend a ton of time, but talking about this one thing, but I think it, you got to bring it up. You talk about the difference between, you know, everything kind of has its entry level equivalent. Yeah. Um, it's difficult in the 3D printing world to really differentiate what makes something better. Like if we're talking sure. shop tools, I mean, down to needle nose pliers, right? Like a good quality set of needle nose pliers. I mean, even scissors. Yeah. Like cutting paper with scissors. Everyone's done. Little screwdrivers. They, yeah. They've cut. They've cut a, a a piece of paper with a bad set of scissors with yeah. maybe just like a wobbly joint. Yeah. And the blades separate and it doesn't want to cut. The yeah. blades could be sharp. They're probably not. But even if they're sharp, it's not going to cut because they can't get close enough together to make that shear. That's a crazy tangent. But my point is, you know when you're using a bad set of scissors, <clears throat> right? Right. And I'm not going to defend a bad set of scissors like, oh, you, the joint was just loose. It's sure. my fault. When you buy something that cheap, you just want it to work. Yeah. Right? There, there is a mentality of it's good enough. And you and I do it. Not like, with scissors. Well, you throw them away if yeah. they're not good enough. But let's take... It could apply to scissors. Well, this is, It definitely could apply to scissors. This is my point, though, that they... With 3D printing, it's just funny because th that mentality isn't there. If you have yeah. a bad 3D printer... You work your butt off to make it work. Sure. And only on very rare occasions does someone hate their printer. I, this is my opinion. Uh, this is based off of me reading uh, on forums whenever I've looked things up or, or whatever. You have people that say, yeah, it's it's got these challenges, but this is how you fix it. And oh, people yeah. People fall in love with their printer even more it's, almost. When it's, like, it's like having a child who is a delinquent <laughs> and is in and out of juvie, you still love them because you put all the effort into like creating them but do you and love raising them. More? them. <laughs> That's a terrible, do you love your kid more <laughs> because they, you worked harder to maybe get them out of the system? That, that That's all I'm saying. And, and there's probably people out there that are like, that's me. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe people aren't real enough to say that's them, but, but it's just an interesting world because a bad tool, uh, maybe I need to rephrase that. It's not a bad tool. Because we've talked about yeah. it's, it can just become limiting. And yeah. I think there sometimes can be difficulty in the 3D printing world of delineating what that, where that line is, I, where that point of this is limiting now. Right. I'm ready to move forward. Well, um, you have, you have the Shapeoko, right? Mm-hmm. And the Shapeoko is squarely in, in the realm of being a hobbyist machine. Yeah. There are people who make some money off of it. But it's you a would, CNC machine for those of you who aren't familiar. Yeah, it's a little CNC router. And there are even shops that have Shapeokos, but they are used to just kind of supplement the business. 
if you are in the business of building cabinets or inlays or whatever, you need a machine that has a more rigid spindle, a faster spindle, speed, service, availability, contracts, and stuff like that. And um, for a lot of people, the Shapeoko is the perfect tool. Mm-hmm. Now, you do not find Shapeoko really advertising their machine as being as good as uh, a Lagoon router or something like that. You don't see that, but you kind of do see that in the 3D printing realm where you have the, <laughs> yeah. the, the companies who are making these printers trying to claim that there's no difference or they're the same or yeah. it's an extreme value because you're buying this machine for one one hundredth the price of. Why is that? That's a good question. I think, and now I'm being very speculative, but we've talked about the history of 3D printing and how it's exploded in the in the public realm over the last 10 years. And for sure, there are opportunists that have been attracted to the industry. You know, you know who the Krasenstein brothers are? No. Okay. Um, so the Krasenstein should, brothers... Is this something I should look up? No, but they, they've become sort of well-known um, as being basically Twitter trolls. Okay. And... and and they turned towards politics. So they eventually got banned from Twitter for just trolling uh, Trump and doing all sorts of things like that in that realm. Mm-hmm. But these guys are opportunists. And I know that because I've met them and I know them from the 3D printing world. Before they got into politi- politics around 2015, 2016, they were deep, deep, deep into the 3D printing industry. And they were writing blogs and they had media companies and they were just promoting and pumping 3D printing. They were opportunists. And then as soon as they saw something shinier and brighter and with a much bigger reach than 3D printing, they moved over. And they didn't build a hardware company, but they could have, right? They built a 3D printing focused media company. There are are people similar to that who built 3D printing focused hardware companies. And there was this race to the bottom and it attracted people who were not in it, I think for the right reasons. So I think that's why we see a little bit of a difference here. I I wouldn't even say it attracted people because obviously someone's got to be buying those, those products, right? Those, that race to the bottom, someone's buying those and maybe you're just focused on the wrong value adders, right? Like build platform. That one is, like number one hobbyist, like how big of thing can I build? True, and that's a that's a conversation dr- driven purely by marketing, right? Exactly, and so some some person can come make this big, huge build platform just to hit that number on the spec chart. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They did not have and the best sells. interest in mind of the user. Right. Because you and I know, like with bigger build platforms come a lot of challenges, a lot of headaches. And in most cases, it's not even worth pursuing unless you have this, this, this already taken care of on the machine, right? Yeah. If, so that's what I'm saying. It attracted people, entrepreneurs, business people who didn't fully understand the technology. They didn't fully understand market and we're just out there to make make machines that uneducated or uninformed or new people new to the industry would buy which we all were at some point right everyone's like we've there all we've all been attracted to a number on a spec sheet yeah and then you shop that number like it, it's the only thing <clears throat> you're drawn to when you do a search online right. and it becomes ultimately what you figure out is once you have it you brought up my shape oko I had heard rumors that you could mill. This was years ago. I I think I had a first gen Shapeoko, uh-huh. if I remember right, and it was awesome. And I had heard rumors that you could mill aluminum on it. So what do we do? Me and my buddy, he had one as well. We start trying to mill aluminum, <laughs> dude. It was a mess. Yeah. And the proof is in the pudding. Like, right. The second we started doing it, we realized the limitation of the machine was probably the little urethane wheels. Because it, it rolls on a gantry, and it's similar to a lot of 3D printers, how they operate in X and Y, and the print heads move around. 
Well, the print heads, luckily, in 3D printing, they don't have any load really applied to them. They do have, but much smaller. Yeah. With CNC, you're really pressing down into material or you're side-loading a tool. So there's a lot of forces that get applied. And and that kinetic chain is quite long. Like right. The forces at the tool come up through the spindle, through the gantry, into through the, the rails. Into the urethane wheels, then to the yeah. rails. Yeah. So you're going through bearings. My point is... The second you start trying to mill some, uh, a more sturdy material, that's when you're going to see, oh my gosh, yeah. this isn't a real CNC machine, which of course you know that. But my point is the line is super clear, like with CNC right. routing. With 3D printing, how come it's not as clear? Like how <laughs> how can people... Perhaps this is the reason why. So with professional hardware, you have a very wide spectrum of price points. So I would say the price points for machines that are just purely commercial, like you're not going to buy them as a hobby unless, you know, you're, you're Elon or somebody like that. But yeah, I would say the pricing starts around $10,000, just ballpark. And the pricing for polymer professional 3D printers can go up into the hundreds of thousands of dollars you are going to see a very wide spectrum of hardware available on those systems. And on the lower end of that price point, you are going to see some of the same hardware that you will on hobbyist level systems. You're going to see little stepper motors. You're going to see belt drives. You are going to see more simple extrusion heads. Usually the the execution is a little bit different but there are some similarities. And then as you look deeper down the line into the more professional, more production-oriented systems, then you're going to start to see linear rails and servo motors and active drying and all sorts of things that add a lot of cost, but add a tons of reliability and accuracy and things like that. No one is going to look at that type of system and say, that's a hobbyist-level system. They're, they're going to look at it, probably compare it to a CNC machine tool, a mill or a burning machine or something. But on the lower end, people might see, hey, my my system has a lot of the same parts. So my system is probably just as good. Or has the potential. Has the potential to be just as good. That's where you get into and the tuning. That's where you get into the tuning and the reliability. And, you know, you and I have seen studies that show something like uh, an F120, Stratasys, the reliability. Like, what are the what's the expectation? When you send a uh, part, what's the percent chance that you're going to get a good part back versus, you know, other hobbyist level machines, there is a distinct difference between that. And that might have to do with the execution of the hardware. It might have to do with the software. And also the fact that Stratasys machines are sold with the intent of this is an application that's going to have an ROI. And if the machine isn't holding up its end of the bargain, like we as the reseller or Stratasys as the OEM is sort of on the hook for that to make it right. And you don't get that guarantee with these other tools, which is why we have a whole team of field technicians, right? That are on the phones during all business hours, waiting for people to call with questions about why a print's not working right or consistently, you know, coming out of spec or consistently curling or whatever. The technicians Take that call, they listen to it, they might diagnose a hardware issue. Sometimes they'll come to us as application engineers and try to understand like, this is the application, this is what they're trying to do, what can they what can they do, is the expectation, should this work, should it not? And that, at the entry level, that's why you have that extra zero on that price point. It's not so much hardware related, some of it is, you know, like build trays. Build trays on our end are injection molded consumable pieces that are engineered to work with the available materials on a hobbyist system. It's a pane of glass, right? Well, uh, yeah, I actually think that's one of the biggest differentiators is the, the build tray itself mm -hmm. on most hobby level systems are a heated tray. Yeah. With, I think the move to industrial, you really can't make that move unless you have a heated chamber and that's different. I, I want to point out the difference between a heated chamber and an enclosure. Yeah. They're not the okay. same thing. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like 
it does help. Don't get me wrong. Having an enclosure on your system, if it's a heated bed, that helps because say the AC kicks on, yeah. makes a draft in your room mid print, that can be enough to mess up some yeah. prints. But a heated chamber takes that to another level. It's insulated. And the idea is to have uniform temperature surrounding the part. Right. It's, it's engineered as a system. You know, ultimately the goal is to eliminate temperature gradients across your print. And when we are talking about a process that, again, can take 10 to 100 hours, that's a, a lot of opportunity for things to go wrong. And of course, an enclosure around your heated table is going to help, but you still have that one source of heat. Maybe you have some fans that move that heat around, but were they engineered as a system together? They weren't. And perhaps you find that it works well as long as your prints are under two inches or under five inches. But if you build up to the top of the tray, or if you have multiple parts in different areas of the tray, then you don't get the consistency, which as a hobbyist, it might be fine. Hey, you know what? I'm only going to print one part at a time. I don't need to use 100% of my build capacity because that's how I'm going to set my expectation. But again, if your goal is to make money, if your goal is to have high throughput, to attract more customers, whatever, you can't arbitrarily say, I'm going to cut out 50% of my capacity. Yeah. You, you could, but you're not going to want to. Yeah. One of the things that I thought, as you're saying that, is like a sweet spot on the build tray, mm -hmm. right? Like maybe that's something you learned about your printer and that's kind of, um, what do you call that? Like tribal knowledge. It's just yeah. something you pick up along the way. That kind of knowledge is really, really difficult to scale. You know, right. you keep talking about scale. And so getting back to equipment, that's when it makes sense to have a piece of equipment where you don't need that knowledge anymore. Yeah, it took you a lot of work to figure it out. It absolutely has value. Right. You know, if you know you're going to get, you know, 30% more successful prints out of always printing on that sweet spot on your tray, that's worthwhile. But the idea as, you know, you're not going to see the Amazons of the world or the Apples or, you know, these big mega companies investing in machines that require that type of knowledge. They right. just want something that prints and goes. And I think there's a middle ground there for sure. But you skirted around some numbers and I actually have a study um, from Stratasys that I pulled up uh -huh. on reliability. Okay. And uh, I hate this study kind of uh, because it makes it seem like Stratasys printers are 100% reliable. Uh, we know better than that. They're, they are very reliable, but this, anytime you see 100% or 0% on a study, You become skeptical. Kind of, right. Yeah. But they did a comparison between um, some of the popular printers of the world, Mark Forged, um, the Lutz Bots, the Ultimaker S5, and the Ultimaker 3. Uh, just to name a few. And they found that their nearest competitor, they printed uh, 18 builds a piece on every one of these printers. I'm okay. assuming that they are the exact same build. Yeah. And they don't actually say what builds they were, but uh, Stratasys completed theirs on the F123 series. All 18 were 100% built. Um, Meaning that the part completed as expected. Right? Exactly. Okay. Yep. And the nearest competitor came in at 79%. So that's the nearest competitor. Competitor. I'm not going to tell you who it was, um, but the lowest was 54%. So <laughs> you're talking yeah. about a lot of wasted time. Yeah. So if you're that guy, you're trying to scale up from having your print farm of, of good solid printers, but you, you're having throughput issues or you need faster build times or more reliability that's when you make the jump. When right. your equipment becomes the limiting factor, you already have that foundational knowledge that we started the podcast. And there's off. a lot of value in that knowledge. You have to have it. Yeah. You, eh, nowadays, you could probably skip a few of the steps. Having the, Going straight to an industrial grade, it's it doesn't happen every day, but we do see it every once in a while. And 
I'm almost kind of jealous or mad at those guys because yeah. they didn't have to go through the stuff that I did. They didn't have to wake up to a sure. rat's nest on you, their printer. But and I feel think, that pain. You know, that's just like that's like being born as an heir or an heiress to a fortune. Yeah. Right. You don't <laughs> grow up to be a fully developed person because you have no adversity. Right. Yeah. And adversity builds character. Adversity is valuable knowledge. Like it helps you make better decisions, mm -hmm. you know? And so there is absolutely value in going through some of the pain points that we're talking about here uh, because it helps you grow into a more robust, well-rounded operator of a printer. Right. Even if you don't have to worry about that information, the fact that you know it exists helps you. It's going to help you win business because if someone is coming to you and they're price shopping, and they say, why are you two times more expensive than this competitor? You ask them, what, what's their technology? What printer are they using? You can warn them, hey, maybe they will deliver this time, but just be warned that they may not be able to meet your expectations in terms of quality, time, whatever. Just be prepared for that. It becomes a way for you to differentiate yourselves from your competitors. Yeah, in a very authentic way. Absolutely. To our listeners, whether they're on one end of the spectrum or the other, let's talk a little bit about the ones that aren't pros. Okay. So if you're not a pro right now, you're listening to this podcast, maybe you don't even have a 3D printer yet. What are the things you can do to inch your way towards that goal or, or even just rapidly reach becoming a pro, making money. I think that's kind of how this podcast ended up going is like, how can we turn into yeah. money makers on a big or small scale? Well, I'm going to focus on the, the 3D printing aspect of this because there's sure. a whole other conversation about the business aspect of it and building right. a brand and, and finding market and things like that. I'm not going to talk about that. So just with the 3D printing, how do you prepare yourself to offer value? in your prints. And I would say the best thing that you can do is challenge yourself, you know, take on personal projects, passion projects that you think are pushing your own uh, boundaries or comfort level. Try to operate outside your comfort level and do it consistently. Uh, because what you're trying to do at that level is to better understand the hardware, finding the sweet spot, for example, knowing and understanding your I'm, I'm, I'm mostly assuming FDM or FFF printers, filament printers, yeah. maybe some low-end resin printers as well are becoming more accessible. Right. You have to know and understand what your printer does well because you are trying to reach a point where you have reliability in your process. And a lot of that reliability is going to be on your shoulders. It's going to be your burden to make that printer do what it's capable of doing because of you know, the, just the value proposition that you had. You pay less money for your printer. You take on more responsibility for its success. So continue challenging yourself. Print a lot of parts. Design parts of your own. Design them for additive. Design them not for additive. And know and understand the difference. Know how to read a part and understand how to build cost out of a part. Because if you can build cost out of a part, usually that means your turnaround time is going to be faster. Price is going to come in more reasonable. And you're setting yourself up for success there. And uh, especially if you can offer a redesign capability to people who already have you know, a model and, of course, having some modeling skills, et cetera. But just keep, just keep printing. And be aware of the limitations of your system. Be aware of your own limitations. Do what you can to get around those. And be comfortable with what you're doing. Continue on that journey until you think something has to change. If you're ready to grow more, how am I going to get there? If you want to get into a different niche of printing, how am I going to get there? Like you might have a niche that's very squarely solid in mechanical prints, but maybe you find someone who is interested in fashion or some other industry. Ask yourself, do I have the capabilities of servicing them? Like, can my equipment do it? Am I capable of doing it? You don't know until you try sometimes. You don't know until you try, but... Um, especially at that level too, have a conversation with them. Like, hey, I want to help you. I'm not sure I can, 
let's work together. Let's collaborate if you're willing and if you're able, and let's see what we can do. And you might find, this will happen, you might find that somebody sees that eagerness, wants to work with you, realizes you don't have the equipment or the software, whatever, and perhaps they agree like, hey, here's a contract that I'm willing to enter in with you, but you're going to have to make this step. And that's actually how you can grow a business is collaborate with people and find ways to bring money into the business and reinvest that money into self, either through training or courses or education in some way, or and or invest reinvesting that money into your hardware. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I the advice I'd give is like you said, print as much as you can, find out your limiting factors. Yeah. Uh, the only way to figure out your limitations are to stretch. And it it the best lessons are learned the hard way. Right. Right. And if you never expose yourself to that type of failure, then you'll never grow. Yeah. And it's it's easy to do in 3D printing. And so failure, it's kind of cool in 3D printing. Nobody has to know about it. You know, if it's just your hobby level machine yeah. and you're just starting out grabbing files from Thingiverse, say you don't even have any way to create a 3D object or export an STL or you don't even know what that means yet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. It, it all starts with grabbing something from Thingiverse and like, man, I wish I could make an adjustment or a tweak to this, mm-hmm. then it would work. Mm-hmm. And so I would recommend get some sort of 3D software, 3D modeling. Yes, absolutely. I, I don't care whose it is. Um, obviously we sell SolidWorks here. We have a vested interest in SolidWorks, but it doesn't matter if it's, uh, shape up or what, what, it, what, you, you, what are some of these tools? I don't on even, shape, on shape. shape. Yeah. Go. On shape fusions, even SketchUp, you know, SketchUp pro people use the, the, the don't com- use that one. <laughs> the con, the, the conversation <laughs> around CAD tools is very similar to the whole conversation that we had around 3d printers. No, you have hobbyist level, you have professional level, they have different capabilities, they have different um, expectations, etc. You're going to have to choose, if you're entering into a hobby or a business, you are going to be tasked with choosing the tools that are right for you at that time. And with the thought in the back of your mind, what are ultimately my goals? And am I making a decision that is going to prepare me for the next step? Because the last thing you want to be doing is making decision after decision after decision that have no scaling because you're going to be fighting yourself and you're going to feel like you wasted a lot of money, to be honest, when you go to try to go to that next step. Because the journey between like what you and I do or what our customers are doing versus someone who is just barely learning how to create an STL file. There are many, many, many steps, and you do not want to be in the situation of reinvesting every step of the way. So just try to make sound decisions that will scale up to a certain point, I would say. Yeah, and that's hard to see. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of great resources online, Reddit. Mm -hmm. One of the issues is, is everyone's got an opinion. Yeah. And who do you trust? Right. So... You know, there are great 3D modeling tools out there. Get started with that. Start creating some STLs. Start printing. Start printing and start failing. Uh, again, this is it. I don't don't be afraid of cost. Yeah. Um, because things don't really cost too much in 3D printing. A failure. Eh. If you listen to episode two. There's a famous failure uh, that my uh, buddy's <laughs> printer had on a really tall part. It it can cost fifty bucks. You know it, that was yeah. It, it could cost. It know. could cost a lot more. It's all about what are the expectations that you've set for yourself and for whoever that print is intended for. And if you manage expectations, then perhaps the only cost to you is time and the material cost. That's the minimum amount. It could cost you a lot more. It could cost you a relationship with a customer, right? Don't let that happen. Don't don't let that happen. Know your boundaries, but push them. Seek feedback, you know, uh, ask, show your prints to people. 
and, uh, you know, ask their opinions, right? Yeah. Also, always be looking for the business angle. Be th learn to think in terms of ROI and value because with printing, your time's you, not free. Oh, and yeah, value your time. <laughs> Please do value your time. I hate that. I hate when I see people enter it into these. It doesn't cost me anything. Yeah. I can fix it. Yeah. I thought that all through my 20s. And yeah. now that I've reached middle age. You're not middle-aged. <laughs> I know, but I've, I've, quick, I've, I've come to realize that I don't have enough time to pursue everything I want to do. And so I've actually started to value my time. And uh, I wish I would have done that a lot sooner. But yeah, value your time and just learn to th think in terms of value and respect that value. So know and understand how you can offer value and demand that people give you value in return, usually in the form of dollars or Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, we're coming up on time. So I think that's a great way to wrap things up. Uh, yeah. I do want to, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say this would be a great precursor to a discussion about career paths in 3D printing or career paths in additive manufacturing. What sort of jobs are out there in the 3D printing industry. You know, we've mentioned a couple types of jobs here. We've mentioned technicians, mm -hmm. we've mentioned application engineers, we've mentioned salespeople. And then of course you have end users like mechanical engineers and chemical engineers and different types of engineering roles. You have process engineers that are working and developing hardware, software engineers. I would love to have a discussion in the future about 3D printing career paths. Absolutely, I think that's great. Um, so the call to action that I want to give to everybody is tell us where you're at in your process. Yeah. Uh, we want to know a little bit more about you all mm -hmm. guys and girls out there and, and across the world yeah. really it looks like we've got a little bit of reach. So yeah. tell us where you're at. We want to know more about our listeners. Uh, we're going to throw our emails in the about section, right? Description on the description, yep. on whatever platform you're listening, you should be able to find it. Shoot us a shout out, give us a quick blurb about you, and uh, we'd love to hear where you're at. Yeah. We can gear our, our content more towards you and try and tailor it a yeah, little bit. Absolutely. We want to offer maximum value to you as a listener. So help us do that by letting us know who you are. Yep. So I think that's a wrap for this episode. Uh, I'm happy to be a part of it. I'm happy to get some data actually on our listeners. So yeah. look forward to talking to you next week. Next week. Take care. Do we got a day? Yeah. A goal? Yeah, maybe Wednesday. Okay. I think Wednesday's good. Cool. Keep, keep an eye on that future episode. All right. See take care. Guys.